we are very close to Pesach. We are less than two weeks away. So I thought it would be very good to really introduce Pesach as really, in many ways, the, the definitive holiday of the, the Jewish pro, uh, the program, the Tikkun program, that God wants to initiate. So as such, <clears throat> I'm going to go through it comprehensively uh, from the beginning until, until the end. And ultimately speaking, I want to answer the following questions. But before I do, I want to dedicate this year to Rini Molko, uh, Regina Bat Yosef Reuven, that this year should go for Aliyah's Neshama of her in Gan Eden. So I want to do that. Now, <clears throat> Pesach is a very important Yom Tov. In fact, in many ways, it's definitive. Definitive means that it's essential. It illustrates an essential idea of what God really wants and what the task of the Jew is and certainly what one of the main ideas is of the tikkun, of the rectification of creation. And in many ways it will answer many questions about Pesach which is really, in many ways, mysterious to many people. For instance, why do we eat matzah on Pesach? You see, now we know historically, uh, because when the Jews left, they were rushed out, and they didn't have time for the food, the bread, to rise, so it only became matzah. So we know the history. But the question is, still, was that an accident? Was that a result of history? Or was there something else? And we see that it has to be something else. Why? Because it became the essential mitzvah of Pesach. Right? To eat matzah. Another question. Right? Chometz. Well, the Barashim said you cannot, eat, you cannot eat chometz. You know? Now, chometz obviously is matzah but with se'or, leaven, or yeast, or whatever, where the matzah rises because it comes sort of like fermented. So why can't we eat chametz? What does that indicate? You see. Then we have a concept called moror, right? Uh, why do we have to eat bitter herbs? And what's the whole concept of a seder? A seder means an arrangement, you see. So why do we have a seder on the uh, first and second night of Pesach? Then we have the idea of four cups of wine. Why do we drink four cups? Why do we drink at all? And why number four, you see? So that's a, a very powerful question. Then we have really, right? Um, we call Pesach, well, actually, the one question is, why do we have a fifth cup that we call Pesach? You know, why don't we drink that? And why are there five? Then there's the question of, why do we call Pesach 
חג, חג המצויס. That's what the Torah calls Pesach, Chag HaMatzis. Why? Then we, call, we, we say that Pesach is Man Cheruseinu, the time of our freedom. Well, does this indicate the historical event where the Jews left Egypt, and therefore it was obviously freedom and liberty? Is that why we say the time of our freedom? Then we have the concept called Korban Pesach, where every Jew was commanded, right, to bring a Korban Pesach. Why would that be? And then we have the historical event of the Esamachus, the ten uh, blows or strikes, beatings, whatever you want to call it, you know, in, uh, that happened in Egypt. What do they represent and why are there ten? And then, of course, after that, we have one of the greatest miracles ever demonstrated by God. And that's the miracle of the Yamsuf. I mean, could you imagine what it is to have a sea split? But according to the Medrash, it was far more complex than that. It split into 12 rows. Each tribe went down one row and so on. There are many miracles associated with the Yamsuf. Why was there a Yamsuf? You see... And of course, it was the death of all the Egyptians. All these are questions that you can ask about the holiday of Pesach. So the question is, can we see not one, one uh, answer, but can we see how each one of these questions really has an answer that is all unified into a central theme? That is the question. And the answer is yes. The key is to understand what exactly is Pesach all about? And why is it so important? And why is it that uh, the, the end gula, the redemption of the end, uh, which is messianic redemption, why does it have to mirror the redemption of Egypt? Because it says, He may go out the Eschem, Achris, Koreshis. Behold, I will redeem you Achris means the last redemption, which we're waiting for. Gracious as the first redemption. So that's the question. Why does one mirror the other? In fact, you see that in the Agada, where it says, Chayev Kol Odom, every person has to see himself as if he left Egypt. Why? You know? Notice, what is that, the Geula in Egypt? Why does that have to be mirrored in the final one? It's almost as if the final redemption is really a repeat of the redemption of Egypt. So the question, of course, is, what's the meaning of all this? Well, in order to understand it in a comprehensive and fundamental way, you know, you really have to understand, uh, and I've spoken in different parts in different shurim over the years. But to put it all together in one uniform symphony, that's what's critical. And then you realize that all of these questions get answered. And therefore, hopefully, the whole Pesach Seder 
And Pesach itself, Passover, will be uh, commemorated in a different way. <clears throat> now, I once mentioned, and it's very important, it's really a very important theme, that in the beginning what the Rebunishim wanted to create different levels of reality. What are they? Well, the first level of reality that God created, of course, is the level of reality of who He is and the way He can be experienced and the way He can interact with a creation. And we know that's the level of spheres. And the spheres are, of course, divine forces that God created in which he can use them as tools, as instruments, to create realities. But what are the realities that he creates? Well, the first reality, which is the highest, and ultimately we will all return to that reality, is the reality of the neshamas. You see, it is the reality of the souls. We all become, in other words, within us, it's a neshama, it's a soul. <clears throat> and that's really our essential beings. So, in that level, or when we manifest ourselves as a neshama, as a soul, that is really who we are, and that is our, what our identity will be at the end of time which means Olim Habo. So that's called a pure Zulosoi. Zulosoi means other. So what God created is the concept of an other, you see. And that other is the Nishama. And that's who we are. We are pure souls. In fact, the Nishama is so great, it is such an unbelievable, spectacular being, that I would say that the Neshama is not even spiritual, you see. Because the essence of the Neshama, whatever it is, is far beyond Ruchni, spirituality. Now, we, of course, don't understand that, you know. But the Neshama is higher than Ruchni, even though, from our perspective, clearly, the soul is spiritual. Because as far as we're concerned, if it's not physical, then it's got to be spiritual. But spirituality itself has levels. So the Neshama is the highest level of spirituality. Or, I should say, it is a level of being that is so high that I would not even call it spiritual. I would really call it divine. Yes. That divinity is the nature of the Neshama. Now, the second level of reality are the angels, and they are spiritual. And what's important to know about Malachim, they are spiritual beings, because obviously they're not physical. And as spiritual beings, right, they are intermediaries between God and His creations. So God doesn't interact, and at least now we don't see this. God does not interact directly with the creation. He is concealed. He is hidden. But the way he reacts with them, or I should say interacts with them, 
is through the agency of malachim, angels, or other spiritual beings, because there are ten levels of malachim. That's how he interacts. And that's what God wanted. He doesn't want to interact directly with his creation. So what he did is he created an entire universe of angels, of which there's uh, almost an infinite number, and they represent God, they are his agents, and they do all the things that Malachim do. So that level of reality is called spirituality, you see. So that's a second level of reality. So there's the reality of the souls, and then there's the reality of the angels and other spiritual forces. Then what God did is he took the Nishamas, not the Malachim, and he encased them in a third reality, and that is called Geshem. That reality is physical. So he actually created a physical universe that we are familiar with. And he takes the Nishama, and like I said, he encases that, right, into the physical reality. He joins them, and he issues a divine decree that they cannot become separate. So no matter what the Neshama wants to do, it cannot separate from the Geshem, from the physical reality. So lo and behold, the soul, which is a reality unto itself, now becomes physical, or I should say it joins the physical reality. It, the Neshama does not become physical. It joins the physical reality. You see, it's like the physical reality becomes a suit that envelops the neshama. And it is destined to always be connected to the physical reality. You see, then what God creates is another reality. So, so far we have the reality of the, in terms of the creation, the soul the spiritual reality, the physical reality, which is merged with the soul. And then he creates another reality, which is an exact opposite. It's an anti-spiritual. It's called the reality of the satan. That the satan is called the sitra akhra, another side, you see. So he creates the reality of the satan, and the Satan itself has many different aspects of it. That is the reality that we are obviously familiar with. So these are the levels of reality or the dimensions of reality that God creates. Now, what does God want? Well, we know he wants mankind to engage in a certain task. And that is that God conceals the reality of the soul and even the reality of spirituality. He conceals that from man. And he wants man to do his will. In other words, to recognize that there is a reality beyond the physical. Because we obviously only see the physical. He wants mankind, especially the Jewish people,
to realize that the essential reality really is spiritual and also divine in terms of the neshama. Especially that there is a God that is the root of all reality. That's what he wants. Mankind should discover that. Now, if he does, then what mankind will have succeeded, especially the Jewish people, is to uh, increase the output of the spheres. And therefore, the physical reality will change. That's called zikuch. That is called, you know, um, purifying physical reality where the physical reality begins to change. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. So I said that the soul is bound up with the body or the physical. So when you increase the output of the spheres, what happens is the physical reality actually changes into what? The physical becomes spiritual. It becomes like malachim, you see. And that takes place, as we know, for several thousand years, after the year 6,000, you see. And it takes approximately 3,000 years for the dissolution of the physical universe. And then after that, the neshama, the physical, doesn't even become spiritual, you see. Then the neshama, which is bound up to the physical, becomes the real neshama itself, and it becomes what's called the world of neshamas. That is Ilim Habo. That's the future world. Uh, so that's what God wants in a nutshell. He wants the neshama to be bound to a physical universe and then by his deeds, which is to obey the will of God, right? God wants him to change a physical reality into a spiritual reality and then the physical reality in the spirituality will no longer be spiritual. It will be divine, which means it will be the neshama itself. Now, the physical body will still exist, but no longer as a physical body. In other words, there will be such an entity as physicality turned spiritual. But the body that becomes spiritual, you see, will then revert into a thin covering of the neshama. So the neshama will always have this physical garb, but the physical God no longer encloses the neshama and hides its essence. It, in a certain sense, will become almost divine, like the neshama itself, although not completely like the neshama. And in that stage where each person now reverts to being a true divine being, almost anyway, and that will be in Olim Haba, the future world, and that is eternal. Now we have no comprehension of what an Ashoma is and what type of a world it inhabits. We don't know. But it's not the same as Ruchni. It's not the same as a spiritual reality. Now, 
Man, however, has a choice. This is what God initially wants. The change from a physical reality to a spiritual reality to a divine reality back to the essential nature of the neshama itself. But God also creates another reality, a very dark reality, where the force of God or the being of God is completely concealed, not because there is a physical reality, but because there is a force of evil. There is actually a force that in some way tries to convince man that he exists as an independent being of God. You see, it tries to deny the reality of spirituality and the reality of God. It's a force of evil. And that's really what evil is. A denial of the spiritual aspects of reality. But man is not originally created or put into that reality of the Sitra Akhra. It exists. But man has to choose to be into that reality. And therefore, we come to the first man. His name, of course, is Odom Harishan. And he's got this choice. So what he is supposed to do, obviously, is to obey the will of God. And then he could start the, the, the upclimb. You know, his Geshem, his physical reality, which is much higher than ours, will now become spiritual and ultimately uh, divine. But he sins. So therefore he enters a lower world, a lower reality. He enters the reality of the Sitra Akhra, which is interesting. So he now not only becomes he's much more physical, so the physical body is an occlusion of divinity, in other words, it conceals the nature of man much more effectively than the original Geshem of Odomarishim before the sin. So not only is man much more physical, you see, and as a result of that, he sees himself as an independent being from God. You know, he's got a real physical body that has, that has no resemblance even to anything spiritual. So therefore he comes to believe, right, that besides God is also himself. But it's worse than that, because he now enters a world, a place, of the Sitra Akhra, the other side, right? And the place that he enters is a place where there are forces that get him to think that not only is he different than God, but it intensifies his belief that he is independent of God and he could do whatever he wants. In other words, the world of the Zoyama is a place where it's almost like you enter an illusion. We're in that world of the Sultan, and he's the angel that represents that whole reality, the Sitra Akhra. That is satanic in the sense that you not only believe that you are independent of God, but you actually believe that you are an independent force, that you can actually do things. You are a true cause. But even more than that, 
and, and that is that you can exercise your being, you see, not only to defy the will of God, but to destroy other beings. Because you are a superior being. So it is a world that allows you to entertain this illusion that you exist independent of God and perhaps you exist only and there is no God, you see. It's a world of absolute intensity of Ein Oid Muvadi. Not Ein Oid Muvadoi, besides God there's nothing else. Or Yesh Oid Muvadoi, besides God. There is something else, namely me. But Enoid Muvadi, there's nobody else but me. And therefore that allows you to interfere with other beings. It's really a terrible world to exist in. Because the danger is enormous. You know. That you believe you are independent, a real being. Perhaps the only real being. And it's a world of tremendous decimation, you see. Now, the way man expresses his Enoi the only one that exists is me, is by destroying successfully others. Because in a certain sense, that's the way, the greatest way a person can convince himself that he is God. He is superior, and he's the only thing that really exists. That's why empires, which are evil, always engage in the overthrow of mankind. You know, it's not that they engage in living the way they want to do, whatever they want to do, but they're occupied with the destruction of others, you see, because they believe not only that they exist independent of God, but that they, they, they are superior. They are true existential beings. You see, that's why real evil is a place where there's murder, killing, damaging, destroying other beings. And that's the height of the illusion in the world of the Sitra Akhra. So the problem is, is that Adam Mauritian, who is not supposed to enter that world of the Sultan, right? He does, because he sins. And that sin is an ultimate declaration that I can do what I want. I can defy the will of God, because I exist independent of God, you see, without getting into the whole nature of the test. So what Adam did by believing that, and therefore defying the will of God, is he actually entered the world of the Sutton. He now lives in that world of satanic reality. That's what Odom did. And as such, of course, he bequeathed that world to the all of mankind. But God still wants mankind to crawl out of that world. And to go back up the ladder. So he wants mankind to leave the world of the Sitra Akra, which means to go back to his state as Odom was, then from Odom Arishan, that was Geshem, to become Ruchni, and then to become Ruchni, to become 
spiritual, ultimately, to go and become uh, divine. God still wants that. The problem is that he now has to crawl from a much lower level. You know, it's almost like, you know, Adam was on a much higher floor in a building. And then all of a sudden, he fell, you know, on, uh, he fell into the basement. So he's not even on the first floor anymore. So he's got to get out of the basement, into the first floor, and then from the first floor, he's got to go to the second floor. This is the existential situation that man created for himself. This is what the consequences of the sin of Adam. Very important idea. So we now understand something, <clears throat> that the original intent of God was that man should not be in such a low state of being, but much higher state. And from that higher state, he should now work his way up to ultimately to be a pure neshama <clears throat> in Oilam Habo. Instead, man fell into the basement, which is a much lower state. It's a state filled into the world of the Sitra Akra. And you are subject to the power of that force. And the power of that force is called Zayama, which means pollution or contamination. Where that force actually is connected to you and it has control over your physical body and over many things, you see. So you are now subject to that force and you have to contend with it. And not only are you subject to that force, since that force is now part of your mind, it's part of you, you see. So therefore what happens now, the task changes. Until then, you know, Adam, had he not sinned, he would have gotten out of being a physical being. He would have changed his physicality into a spiritual entity, like the angels. And then from that, he would have gone into the world of the souls, the real world of souls, which is Oilam Habo. Instead, mankind now is positioned in a world of tremendous zoyamo, tremendous evil, and he is subject to all kinds of illusions, or I should say delusions. So he's got to now crawl out of the basement, which means to eradicate, obliterate, annihilate that world of the Sultan. So he then reverts back to becoming a being that is Geshem, and then once he is that, which was the original state of Adam Arishan, and then once he does that, then he can go back to doing what Adam should have done. And that becomes the new, the Tikkun. You see? And then he would become spiritual and ultimately divine. So we see very clearly what the original plan was and how man foiled that attempt. He changed the nature of his task. And he now has two different stages to accomplish. Stage one is where he would now remove himself from the world of the Sitra Akra, you see. In other words, he would have to annihilate the world of the Satan, dump it, separate it from himself. And then he would become like Adam Rishon before the sin. 
And then he could begin to work his way from that position, ultimately to the real position, which of course is Ilm Habo. You see. Now the way this is all done, obviously, is to observe the will of God. Because by observing the will of God, therefore it shows that you believe in the will of God, and therefore God changes the world to comply with that reality. And therefore the world changes, right, to display that reality of God, which is Enel Milvadai. You see? So that's the way the Tikkun is done. The Tikkun is done by observing or, you know, doing the will of God. That's how it's done. To bring down, right, the force of the spheres turn them up and they will begin to change reality because that's what they do the spheres create realities and they can change the nature of reality so we now have I hope an understanding of what the situation is the initial situation as it was intended to be the ultimate situ- the, the uh, change in the situation which is that we now inhabit the world of the Sitra the world of the Sutton, and that the job of man is that you have to get rid of that and then go back to what man was in the initial stage and then work our way up from there. The tikkun of that reflects the entire tikkun of the Bria, you see. Now, so that's a very important Hagdomo, a very important introduction. Now, the second part of the introduction is to know this, that in the world of the Sutton, there are four different levels of delusion in that world because the force of the Sutton has four different levels to it, levels of delusion, you see. Those are called a creeper, a creeper, right, literally means a shell. It means a barrier to, under, to not understanding the true reality. And there are four barriers. There are really four climates or environments that these four levels can, you know, cloud a man's judgment, person's judgment. What are they? Well, the Torah identifies them in the beginning which says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, mm-hmm. And the earth was, right? The earth is the world of the Sutton. It was Soyu, right? Which means basically a mixture. Voyu, it means emptiness. Choyshech means darkness. And Tohoi means the great abyss great body of water. <clears throat> and these four terms, which are biblical, refers to the four different levels of reality of the Sutton. So as such, they are very important. Now, they are important to us because we have to crawl out of these things, you see. So what we have to do is overturn or eradicate all of these four, you see. Now, these four also, which is very interesting, when somebody 
became a Novi a prophet, you see, he would have to traverse these four realities because he was located, a person, even if he's a prophet, he's located in this world. That's his reality. That's all our reality. And in his prophetic journey, he would then close his eyes and his imagination is, would become conscious of different realities. I mean, he did not uh, travel anywhere physically, but what he did is he closed his eyes, and I'm not going into the whole phenomenon of prophecy. He would close his eyes, and all of a sudden, his imagination, which everybody has, would be able to be conscious of different realities, as if he's looking into those realities, you see. So ultimately, a prophet would be able to go beyond the reality of the physical, beyond the reality of being in the world of the sudden, and then he would go beyond the world of the being Geshem physical, and he would actually go into the world of Malachim, and he actually could see in whatever guise they were. He couldn't see them as they really are, but you can view them in whatever guise they are, or allow, they allow themselves to be seen in that world. He could actually see Malachim, and he could talk to them, because he was conscious, through his imagination, of that reality. Now what is interesting, in order to do that, he would have to traverse the world of the Sultan first, because that's where he was located. So if you look in Yechezkel, right, the prophet Ezekiel, the second parak where it talks about the Maisim Rekova, the story, the account of the divine charity, the divine chari uh, chariot, I should say, right? It says there four different terms. One is called, right, Ruach Sa'ora, a storm. He saw a tremendous storm, Ruach Sa'ora. Then it says Onangodl. Then he saw a great cloud, you see. And then he saw Eshmes Lakachas, a striking fire. And then Noiga, a brilliant light. These four terms, you see, are identical to the four terms used in the Torah. Toyu, which is confusion or mixture. Voyu, which is, which is uh, emptiness. Chushich, which is darkness, right? And then you have um, Tahoim, which is the great abyss, ocean. What's identical to these terms is the terms I just mentioned. Ruach Sa'ora, a stormy wind, right? Onan uh, a great cloud. And then you have Eshlem Mislakachas, a striking fire. Noiga, a brilliant glow. What are these? These, just like the Posset in the Torah, in Bratius, they represent the four levels of the Satan. It's called the four Klippas. These four things mentioned in Yechezkel represent the same thing, the four levels of the Satan. You see? 
But Yechezkel, in order for him to be a prophet, he would have to go through that world of the Zoyama, that world of the Sultan, and then go out of that world, right, into Olam Asiyah, into the world of action, into Yitzira. He would go into the world of formation, and actually he would be able to look into Bria, the world of creation. Now what that means is that just like there are four worlds or dimensions of evil, there are also four worlds of Kedusha. It's called the Sitra de Kedusha. So obviously prophecy is where you want to go higher into the world of Kedusha. So it also has four worlds, right, which I just mentioned. It has Asiya, which is called the world of action. Then you have Yitzira formation. Then you have Bria, which is creation. Then you have Atsilus, right? That's the world of emanations. So he would be able to go into, actually, ultimately, I mean, Yeheska was, he would be able to go into the world of Yitzira. That doesn't mean he went there, but he became conscious of that world, and therefore he was able to talk to angels, and he was able to see unbelievable divine images. Now, Yecheskel, in certain ways, was a low-class Navi. Imagine that. The Navian before him, they were able to be conscious of Oilem Bria, which is higher than Yetzirah, right? The world of creation, which is higher than the world of formation. And they were able to see into Atsilas, because the essential concept of prophecy is to be able to look into Atsilas which is the world that is inhabited by God. God as he is manifest or can be viewed in Olam Hazer. That is the highest form or the highest representation of God is Atsilus. So every prophet basically was able to go into the world, the upper world, and see into Atsilus. And then from that world, he could have tremendous divine messages and divine views. But Yechezkel was not as great as the other Nevi'im, because he was at the end of the prophecy. He was only able to go into Yitzira, and from there he could look into Atsilas. And basically after him, prophecy ended. Especially by Hananel, Mitzor, and Azariah, and so on. In any case, the main idea that I want to bring out is that in order to get to the higher worlds, Yecheskel had to go to the world of the Sutton, which is the world of the four Klippas. And that's what the terms in Yecheskel refer to, you see. And he was able to do that. So what I'm trying to bring out is that the world of the Sutton has four terms in the Torah, and it has four levels of uh, reality, you see, and these are four different levels of reality where there's an incredible intense inclination to believe in self as opposed to believing in God. You see, now what's important is that each of these levels of reality has a different delusional system. So, the world of the lowest people, which is Neuga, right? is where you
tremendous mixture between good and evil. So there is good, or a realization of truth, and with it together there's a world of evil, and remember what evil is. Evil basically is when a person believes in self to the exclusion of any other being. And there are levels of delusion. So that's Neiga, which is the lowest term of Yechezkel's prophecy, you see. Now the next higher level is Eshmes Lakachas. So that is a reality, so to speak, or a world of delusion, where not only you feel the good and evil, but there's no good. There's just evil. There's just this tremendous uh, environment, so to speak, where you are everything, you see. Then, there's the next world, Kleep above that, which is worse. By the way, all of these go deeper and deeper into the delusion that you are somebody independent of God. Then there's the world of the Onangodl. The world of the Onangodl, the great cloud, right, is where everything is now seen as independent of God, not just yourself, but the whole reality is a reality that paints a different picture. That it is a world that everything is now separate. That, it, that the world really is its own reality, you see. And therefore it's called the dark cloud, the great cloud, where the cloud covers everything. So that is a third level of Klippa, which is much worse. And then there's the greatest level of Klippa, Right? which is a, a stormy wind, Ruach Tzora. And that is a reality where the pervasiveness of this delusion is spread throughout the entire earth. So there you are. You have four different levels of reality of the Sitra Achra, the four different Klippas, as reflected in the four levels that Yechezkel traveled or traversed to go into the upper spiritual worlds, and these are the four words of the Torah. Torah, you see. Now, what's interesting is that nations represent different levels of klipa. You see. That's very important. So, you can actually have a nation that is sort of representative or is where this a certain level of delusion is pervasive in that nation. So that nation can be said to be part of that klipa, you see. And that's a very important idea, that different nations represent different delusions of reality between these four. And as a classic example, for instance, Babylon. Babylon was a delusion of what? Of noiga, of good and evil. Because what was interesting about Babylon is that they were spiritual. They believed in God. The problem is that they didn't believe in God. They believed in gods, many gods. That's called Avodizara. So there was a truth that there is a spiritual universe beyond the physical but it was inhabited by a pantheon of gods. So therefore Babylon lived or pervaded by the reality called Neugah. You see, 
The second reality, which was basically all physical, and very little good, but basically a physical reality, right, was not Babylon, it was Persia, Poros. And Poros was known for its enormous physicality. So that was the creeper that inhabited or pervaded Persia. The third level of reality, where the concept of that man is the only thing that exists and he is supreme, and that becomes an all-pervasive chokhmah or ideology, is Greece. Greece had a Weltanschauung, if you want to use that word. They had a chokhmah that they are that everything is the rationale of man. You know, you talk about philosophy and science and everything, and they believed in the greatness and the uniqueness of man, independent of God, you see. So Greece was the reality called, you know, the great, the, the great cloud. Now what Rome did, Rome took the Chochmah of Greece, and they spread it throughout the entire world. So Rome was called the Tahim, right? Or it was called the Ruach Sora, the stormy wind that would carry the great cloud. And therefore Rome took the Chochmah of Greece, which is a reality in which they think everything is based on man, and they spread it throughout the entire world. So we actually have the four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome, representing, essentially, the four different creepers of the Sultan. Interesting, you see. Now this has great, this has great uh, significance for the Jewish people, as I will point out. So therefore, this is a very important introduction or understanding what God initially wanted what it wound up to be because of the sin of Adam, what is the job of man, and also a description of the satanic world, which, like I said, is in the basement, that it really has four creepers, four different levels of reality, which are really represented by four terms in Yechezkel, four terms in the Brejus, right? It's represented by different environments of evil, and it's also represented by different nations. So with this knowledge, we are now equipped to begin our study of what the meaning of Pesach is and why it is so necessary. And for that, uh, I will continue next week, which is the week before Pesach. Hopefully I can conclude it before Pesach. Any questions? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. I have a lot of questions. I wrote them down. Okay. So you said that, um, first I'm going to start from the beginning. You said that um, Hashem doesn't interact with us directly. Uh, yes. Right? We use angels as intermediaries. But all our lives as Jews, we're always searching to interact with Hashem directly. <coughs> yes. So yeah, but there's a difference. If, but there, if, okay. There is a difference. You have to remember, there are two, when I say interaction, there are two concepts of interaction. 
One is the stability and the existence of the entire creation. And the one who does that maintains the existence itself, the stability of the malachim, you see. But the interaction that is caused by God as a result of the deeds of the Jews, then God sometimes interacts with the Jews directly. Not always. The concept of a heavenly tribunal, for instance, is not God. It's a tribunal. Now, of course, God directs the tribunal what to do. He's the one that gives them everything. The power, the ability, the information, and the law, obviously. But it's through a heavenly tribunal. It's called the Bezen Shemayla. You see? Now, sometimes, God sits. Concept. But he sits as the chief justice of that court. But that's only when the Jews as a nation are being judged, you see. But many times, it is the court that judges Jews. So, in a certain sense, between you have God judging the world, at times he does deal directly with, um, with the Jews, but only as a result of their deeds, their behavior. But in terms of the existence itself, to stabilize it, the, the spheres or the courts do that. Actually, it's the spheres. So you have a duality here. But this is primarily with Jews. With Goyim, he doesn't do that. With Goyim, it is the courts that deal with the nations of the world, not God, you see. And therefore, each nation has a representative, a malach, that represents it, represents it in a court. Uh, we find that, for instance, you know, in Egypt, <clears throat> when the angel of Egypt tried to defend Egypt from not being destroyed. But that was in a court, you see. And then you have Malachim, who take on the case. And you have Michoel, the angel. Michoel is the angel of Israel, you see. So sometimes he has that role, you see. So there is a duality here. But essentially, that's the way it works. Is that okay. there is an intermediate system that God employs. So when we feel, let's say like some rare times you feel like a very close connection to Hashem. You feel like, not His presence, but you feel something. Are we yes. feeling the angels, the intermediaries, or are we no. feeling... No, we're, we're feeling God. That God does do. And the reason why He does do, in other words, God interacts with each soul directly. It is not through a malach. You see, what a Malach can do is transmit the Giloi, the revelation of God. In other words, Malachim do bring down the force of God. Somehow it goes through the spheres, and that is carried by the Malachim. But what you are experiencing is not the Malachim. They are merely the, the carriers of this revelation, you see. But you are experiencing God. Why? Because you are a neshama. The beauty of a neshama is that it's much greater than the malachim. Like I said, 
the soul of which we have no concept is, and that's really who we are, is the greatest existential being ever made. And it is a direct being that emerges from the spheres. So you are experiencing God. So, okay. So now when you were speaking about the neshama, how um, the point of the neshama is to be bound to spirituality and then it turns into a divine, right? And then in Olam Haba, the physical ends up being like translucent or a thin layer. So my question is, is that when the neshama is divine, where does a merit weigh in? Like, meaning, does your merit uh, dictate how divine your neshama will be? No. It dictates how much shefa you will receive. In other words, your reality becomes the reality of the soul. Therefore, there's no barrier, basically. But what there is, is how much quantity of shefa, of divine revelation will you experience now that depends on your deeds the greater your deeds which means the greater your mitzvah observance the greater your love of God and fear of God right the greater your dedication to God's will then when time comes and you no longer have a barrier of even being spiritual certainly of being physical certainly of not having any zayama then the amount that you receive of the revelation of God's presence, right, that depends on your deeds. But there's no more barrier. There's no Sizoyama barrier. There's no physical barrier. And there's no spiritual barrier. Because you are now an Ishama, which is the greatest form of divinity that we could possibly imagine. Remember, but it's not God. Because God is not divine. We call him divine, you know, from a certain perspective. But God is beyond divine. God is something that we cannot fathom what his reality is, you see. But the neshama is divine. It's the closest thing that we can call divine. We call God divine, right, from that perspective because we have no other term for God. We have no other term what his reality is, right? So we call God divine. But he's not divine. He is super. I mean, I don't even know how to describe that. He is super existential, whatever that means, you see. Okay. So when we get up from the resurrection of the dead, our Nishama's job is to turn from physical to spiritual? Yes. Well, um, the Tchias Amesim, resurrection of the dead, which will occur after Mashiach ben David comes, right? So what will happen is in the Tkufa, in the time of Mashiach ben David, the world of the Sitra Achra, the basement, is wiped out. It doesn't exist anymore. And that's what they mean. And in Chad you know, at the end of, uh, of the Seder, we, we sing Chad Gadya, you know, and it says there that um, the Malachamovas will get slaughtered. That, that means that's the end of the Zoyama. There's no more death. There's no decomposition. 
There is no degeneration. There's no sickness. There's no death. You will always feel phenomenal, you see? But then you are purely physical. You will revert to being exactly like Adam before the sin. Then, when the world turns 6,000, which is the English year 2240, that is the end of the Messianic era of Mashiach Mandavid, then the world begins to change from physical to spiritual. And that will take place 3,000 years because there are three spiritual worlds. There's Oilem Yitzira, and then there's Oilem Bria, the world of Bria, world of Yitzira, and then there's world of Atsilas. So to traverse or to become a being that is appropriate for those three spiritual worlds, right, will take a thousand years for each world. So by the year 9,000, because on 6,000 the world is over, then from 6 to 7, 7 to 8, 8 to 9, you traverse. You become a different reality in each of those worlds. Entire, the entire universe turns into that world, you see. So by the time 9001 arrives, the world will now be at the end of Atsilus, where it has become Atsilus, which is the greatest world of Ilm Hazer. Then from the year 9000 begins Ilm Habo. And we don't know what that is. Because like I told you, Ilm Habo is not really a world of spirituality. We use the word Ruchni because we have no other term. And to us, anything which isn't physical is spiritual. But the difference between Ilm Habo and in Kabbalah it's called Adam Kadmoin, primordial man, and everything below it, which are the four worlds, right, is almost infinite. And that begins on the world 9000, where you become a soul entity. And even though you have what's called a former body, that body is completely transparent. And uh, it, ha it almost has, it exerts nothing on the soul. And that soul is now bound up with God to the extent of its deeds. To what extent did it love God, feared God, and to do the will of God? You see? And that's what happens. So throughout those thousands of years, your soul, whatever Shefa got from when it was living in this world, that's it? You can't, get, you can't grow? I'm not understanding your question. What do you okay. mean? So, our Shefa uh, in the in in those in the Olam Haba comes through our marriage, however much marriage we did in this world. Yes. Okay. So now you're saying between the years six to seven thousand, we're moving up in Olama. Yes. So, but does our Shefa stay the same, stagnant, or does it be able to grow as? We oh, you mean, is there a change even in the Shefa at that, at that point? And the yes. answer is yes, yes. In fact, what's interesting is the amount of Shefa or divine force or energy or divine power or divine closeness, Dvekas, whatever you want to call, depending on your deed, begins after death in Ghanedin. 
Gan Eden is a place where basically you have entered Olim Yitzira. You're no longer part of Olim Asiya, which is the physical world. You are now in a spiritual world. But even in the spiritual world, each person will receive, right, in conformity with what they did. Even at that time, you see? So the difference between people already is visible in Gan Eden, which is Olim Yitzira, you see? So you don't have to wait 4,000 years before you begin to see the gradations that people will receive because of their deeds, their merits. It already starts as soon as you die, you see. So in, in Gan Eden, which is Olim Yitzira, if you are an unbelievable tzaddik, Right then and there, you begin to receive some type of shefa. It's nowhere near what Olim Haba is, future world. But it is a difference. You are already graded on what you did in your lifetime. You see? But even then, it's not full. Because a person is judged at the end of time, there has to be the great judgment. Because you are judged not in what you did in your lifetime not only what you did in all the lives that you lived, the resurrections or the incarnations, but you are judged by all the influences that you caused, you see? Uh, so in a certain sense, that's why one of the greatest things you can do is to influence Jews to do the mitzvahs, to believe in God. In fact, there is no greater... Uh, type of work you can do because you get the reward for what they do also and for they and their kids and their kids kids until the end of all generations could you imagine what kind of a payment that is you see that's why it's so important just from that standpoint to um, part of or sponsor the heightening of Jewish spirituality, you know, because you collect, sort of, what they do and their kids' kids and their kids' kids, and not only that, what they do until the end of all time. But like I said, the gradations of your deeds in terms of reward begins right after death, and it's subject to the dinam, to the judgments. You see. So it already begins. Now, my next question... You know what I mean? Yeah, that was amazing. Okay. So when, um, I wanted to ask you, we were talking, <coughs> uh, we were talking about Zohama that, that lives inside of us, right? Say that again, what? The Zohama that's inside yes. of us. Yes, yes. So my question is, is that because I know that the Nabi could uh, go through those four physical world, uh, physical realities of the Zohama and be able to, you know, surpass them. But as a normal, yeah. regular person, can we deplete the Zohama within us while still living in a Zohama world? <coughs> no. The only ones who are ever able to do that, there are people that were able to do that, and because of that, 
they were able to enter Ganeiden alive with their bodies. Who was that? There was Chanoich, right? He was able to do that right before Noach, Chanoich. Then there was, uh, besides Chanoich, was able to enter this Eliyahu, Hanovi. He went up alive, right? And then there's also Serach Bas Asher, the one who told Yaakov Avinu that Yosef still lives. She also never died. So because he blessed her that she should live forever, you know. But that's it. Other than, as far as I know, other than those three, nobody ever surpassed uh, the Zoyama. Everybody had to die. Could you minimize it within us? What? Could you minimize it? Like, don't we always fight this, uh, the, the Yetzir Hara within us? Isn't that a part of the... Yes, of you can. Yes, what you're saying is true. You, there, there are two levels of Zoyama. It's very important. There's a level of Zoyama that is a, a, a remnant, a residue, I should say, from other Mauritian. You cannot remove that. That's what causes everybody to die, you see. And also... That's why when a person dies, they put his body into the mikveh, you see. But there is a level of zoyama, right, which is the concept of sin. That is why many times you find if they have to exhume, that's what it's called, a dead body of a tzaddik, they open up the grave and the guy looks like he's sleeping. It could be like a hundred years and he has not even deteriorated. So that also means that this person lived a life of such righteousness that the Zoyama, that level of Zoyama, did not have the ability to, to, to decompose the body. But that's, that's what happens when you have a tzaddik. And there are many, many stories where they exhume tzaddikim or they had, for some reason, had the unearthed person, you know, and they took a look at the body and they said, it's incredible. There's no decomposition. As if the, it's as if the person just lay down and went to sleep. You see? That's because they, ins- they have neutralized that particular level of Zoyama. So what you're saying is true, but on the other hand, there is a level of Zoyama that you cannot get rid of until God allows the process of, of, uh, of neutralizing the Zoyama to begin. And that will not happen until Mashiach ben David. Okay. You see. So if we know the four levels of the Klippas, the four Klippas of the Satan, how yeah. come the knowledge doesn't help us surpass it? How come the knowledge doesn't help us surpass? If not, you know? And if not for the average person, for the Sadiqim, for them, like, how come as, uh, you know, as a whole, we're not able, we know, we know the Klippa, we know what it is, and we know how to fight it, so why can't we the, move out? The answer it? is, you know, many people know traffic laws, but that doesn't mean they can become traffic-abiding citizens. That's the choice, the Bechira of men. You know, there are many things we know that are not good for us. 
The people do it anyway. Because everybody has a self-interest. Usually it's taiva. Everybody wants pleasure or everybody wants to do what they want to do. They don't want to listen to authority, right? Or they want honor and glory. You know, usually most people know when they're doing something wrong. So the question is, why are they doing it? I mean, the courts are filled with this, right? Our lives are filled with things we know is wrong. There are things we do that we know are not healthy. We still do it. Because we are blinded by our self-interest. That's why. I mean, that's a huge topic to talk about. You know, why do we ignore what we know is bad for us? That's the free will. So knowledge of what is right or wrong is no guarantee that we will always make the right choice. That's the human condition, you see? So we have to strengthen this knowledge and try to make it work for us in a practical way. You know, but that, that's a struggle. It's a lifetime struggle, you see? And many people struggle with this for their entire lives. People do things that they know is bad or wrong or whatever, and they can't stop, either because of habit or because, uh, you know, pressure from other people or because it brings rewards where everybody wants. Listen, that's the free will of man. You know what I mean? That is why. Okay. Is that it? One more question. So really, yeah? it's, now that you're telling us all the Kripah and the levels of the Satan and all of that, as yeah. a nation, it's nearly impossible to get out of it without the Mashiach. Exactly, yeah. No, we can't. Okay, but our merits need to bring the Mashiach. So how do we bring it if it's impossible for us to move out of it? No. Because God swore to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov that we will ultimately bring the Mashiach, either through Torah, mitzvahs, right, or tshuva, or Yisurin. That's how we do it. This is what's called Yisurin, suffering. That's how they brought Moshe Abeno in Egypt. You know? So that's the guarantee that we will bring Mashiach. And that's called Be'itoi in its time. You see? And that's God swore that we, there must come a time when we will have brought the Mashiach. No matter what. And that is why God instituted three different ways. One is to do the mitzvahs. Right? The second thing is to do tshuva, repentance. And the third way is Yisurin, suffering. And, and, of course, there's a combination of all three. In that way, God guarantees us, and that is his oath, Tavrom Yitzhak and Yaakov, that there will come a time when we will actually bring the Mashiach, and then he will end it all. You see. Those, those three ways, do they have to be on a whole, or can they be personalized? They are both. They're on a national level and on a personal level. It's both. You see. 
That's why really every Jew in the end is basically guaranteed to be an Oilem Habo. Of course, the question is, what does that mean? Where is his level of, of receiving Shefa? That's a different story. But every Jew will be an Oilem Habo. Why? Because in a certain sense, God can guarantee by one of these three or in combination that every person will in some way have, will have undone the Averis. The real question is the per- point of being an Oilem Habo is not how much suffering you want, but how much reward do you want? You know, maybe you'll get into Oilem Habo, you know, and then you're going to wind up in some kind of a shack instead of a palace, you see? But you'll be in Oilem Habo, you see? So that's the real question. The purpose is not to avoid sin. The purpose is to gather mitzvahs, gather reward. That's the problem, you see, and so on. Your soul will be aware of it. its level of your soul will be aware of its level of shefa compared to others in Alam Haba. No, and even if it is, you will not have the meter of jealousy. Could you imagine if you were jealous? If you realized the differences and all of a sudden you were jealous of the other, or you were embarrassed sad. of your own? You'd be it, sad. That means, what? I said you'd be more sad. You wouldn't be sad, you'd be devastated. Yes. And Oilem Habba is forever. <laughs> Oilem Habba is forever. Could you imagine being in a, a place forever, and always being devastated? Mm-hmm. So that's not Oilem Habba, that's a Gehenim. <laughs> what kind of Oilem Habba is that? So therefore, either you will not be aware of what somebody else's level is because he will be experiencing it in a personal way, you know, or you will be aware, but it will mean nothing. God will take away the feelings of devastation and jealousy. Or else, how could you possibly enjoy Oilam Habo? So it's one of the two. You see. But there will be differences. And like I told you, those differences are already present in Gan Eden. You know, you have to wait for Ilam Abba. You see? And it makes sense. Because why do you have to wait for your merit in Ilam Abba? You may have to wait for the merit, but why do you have to wait for what you really deserve because of your merits. You don't. They are already applied uh, in Ghanaian. You see? Okay. Thank you, Rabbi. Yes. That was great. Thank you so much. Is somebody asking me something? I don't hear anything. Oh, okay. I have a question. That, um, I have a question, Rabbi. Yeah, go ahead. If, if, Hashem, if Hashem interacts with the souls individually, is that just yes. the Jewish neshamas, or is it also the rest of the world? It's basically the Jewish neshamas. And, uh, but but I, I think uh, that he interacts even with non-Jews 
if they are what's called uh, a, a Noachide. Because a Noachide, somebody who observes the seven mitzvahs of Noach, because God commanded him, it's got to be for that reason, because God issued those commands, right? Probably also, then he's called a righteous Gentile, and God will react with him also. Yes. Because he's a righteous Gentile. So Goyim, and they don't understand this. What a tragedy. They have no idea what awaits them. But if a Goy becomes a Noachite, where he observes the seven mitzvahs, but he's got to do it because God commanded him, God commands the people of the world to do that, then he becomes a, a Ben Noach, uh, whatever you want to call it, the Geratoshev and so on, and God will interact with him on a personal level because he has become righteous. You see? God is not a racist. Yeah. It doesn't make a difference who you are. I mean, it does in a certain way, you know, but if somebody wants to become a Noachide and remain a Noachide, that he too will get Oilem Habo or Gan Eden, or whatever, you see. So yes, when right. Hashem is like shaking up the world now, and yeah. more people are starting to, you know, say this is probably yeah. God. Yes. Is, is that, is that <clears throat> Hashem like waking up the rest of the world also? Yes, yes, right. Yes, and it's going to grow much worse. I should say, much more severe. Where the world, even now the world is beginning to recognize that mankind has reached what's called the nadir, the lowest point that he can in terms of morality and righteousness. I mean, this is the pits. What can you say? So even now people are beginning to say, well, maybe we are approaching the end of mankind and the beginning of a messianic era. Yeah. Yeah. It'll get much more strong. That's, that's together with Mashiach Ben Yusuf. Yeah. 